Well, so uh, grateful to the Thomas family there for putting that little video clip uh, together for us. Well, if you were with us uh, last Sunday morning, you'll recall that we spoke about how we, we were created, created with both the desire and the need to connect, to connect with our creator God, but also to connect with creation and with other people too. God told Adam before things go wrong in Genesis chapter 3 that it was not good for him to be alone. We human beings need and we crave connection. We thought a bit about how we'd realize that during this time of lockdown. And this week we're going to dive just a little bit deeper into connecting with God our creator as we journey into Genesis chapter 3. Now last weekend our scripture reading ended with the story of the creation of Eve and it finished with these words, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now this verse has always amused me and intrigued me, amused me probably because I'm slightly immature, but also I'm somebody who thinks in pictures. Now please remember that fact uh, as we keep going this morning. But this scripture has also intrigued me because I love the deeper theological significance of these words about nakedness being included within the text. I think it's especially poignant since it's the last thing that's communicated in chapter 2 and then the first thing that's communicated after the fall is that Adam and Eve realize that they are naked. Nakedness is a repeated theme in Genesis chapter 3. And if you know anything about Scripture, when God keeps saying the same thing over and over and over, it's because he really wants to drive a point home to us. Now, the question I'm about to ask is a rhetorical question, so please don't shout out your answer or type your answer into the chat if you're watching online. Rhetorical questions are not supposed to be answered, especially because I'm somebody who thinks in pictures. I wonder if you have ever been or you could ever imagine yourself going to a nudist beach for the day. I wonder if you've ever thought about that possibility. If you have been or you thought you might ever go, I wonder whether or not you did or you would feel any shame about the fact that you were sunbathing or you were playing volleyball or doing whatever absolutely stark naked. Well, a few weeks ago, I discovered that a couple from our church have actually spent some time at our local nudist beach at Studland. It was Anne and Wesley Love. I know, absolutely shocking. Now, I should quickly qualify this because they're watching online that they were fully clothed throughout their time whilst they were at Studland. They were just passing by on a long walk to old old Harry Rocks. Now, I guess you're probably wondering, well, how does he know that they've been to Studland? Isn't that beyond the realm of normal pastoral concern? And it is. I know this because Anne and I are friends on Strava, which is an exercise tracking app. Now, with Anne's permission, I'm going to share with you the conversation that we had on Strava. Anne's post said this, just been on a long walk to old Harry Rocks. The naturist beach was quite an education. To which I replied, I love that a nudist beach is an education for a doctor, crying, laughing emoji. Anne then replied, ha ha ha, not so much the anatomy as the manner in which it was being displayed at times. Now I have a bit of a habit of muddling up naturists and naturalists, so I apologize if that happens this morning. I do realize there is a distinction. But let's be really honest for a moment, shall we? Being naked might be the most natural thing in the world But for most of us, it's also the most awkward thing. 
And I think we can trace the reasons for that reality back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. With the end of Genesis chapter 2, we, we see the high point, if you like, of human innocence in God's newly created world. Adam and Eve, we read last weekend, existed without any experience of evil. They existed with no experience of jealousy or deception or insecurity or shame. I just wonder if you can imagine what that must have felt like for them. They had no idea of what it meant to feel ashamed about anything. The fact that they were stark naked was irrelevant in their sinless condition. Now, their lack of shame was not due to ignorance. It was due to innocence. And then as we journey into Genesis chapter 3, we go from the high point to the low point of human history. As Genesis chapter 3 makes clear, the shame that we all feel over being naked is tied to an awareness of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God. Nakedness, if you like, becomes something of a metaphor for the existence of shame in our lives. It becomes a metaphor, an indicator that we try and hide these things and cover them up from God and from one another. So Genesis chapter 3 begins with Adam and Eve being tempted by Satan in the form of a snake to do the only thing that they were told not to do by God. And that was to not eat the fruit from one specific tree. Now that part of the story is found back in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Let me read it to you. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And then the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of uh, good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's make something really, really clear here. If Adam and Eve had only been tempted by Satan, that would have been one thing. But they weren't just tempted, they acted on that temptation in disobedience. So temptation here is not the sin the sin is the disobedience that they caved into that temptation. All of us are tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. Temptation is different from disobedience. Disobedience is disobedience. Temptation is temptation. God had said to them, look, Adam, Eve, there's one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat the fruit from that one tree. That was it. Adam and Eve could have climbed the tree. They could have made a zip wire from the top of the tree to the bottom of the tree. I guess they could have built a wall around the tree to stop them going near it. They could even have cut the tree down. The one thing they could not do was eat the fruit from that tree. And of course, we know what happened from the story. They had fruit salad for lunch. The last line in chapter 2 before the fall is that they were naked and they felt no shame. The first line after they caved into that temptation and deliberately obeyed their creator is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Immediately, it says, immediately they realized they were naked. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. They felt shame and immediately they tried to cover it up. Now, we discover that they use fig leaves, and by the end of chapter 3, God is giving them a clothing upgrade to, to make good the shoddy job that they did in their own strength of trying to hide their nakedness and trying to clothe themselves. As I mentioned towards the end, with the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we're given amazing clothing, clothing that can actually deal with our shame before God in an effective way. So before they deliberately disobeyed, they had no shame. Immediately after their disobedience, they're overwhelmed with a sense of shame. 
And with that shame comes a break in their connectedness, first with God and then with one another. Now, if you were with us last weekend, you'll recall that I promised I would uh, retell my traumatic childhood story about a Lego castle. Now, this castle, the one you can see on the screen now, was my first ever Lego kit, and it was epic. If you're going to get a first Lego kit, get this one as a child. I absolutely loved it. And the day I got it, I think it was a birthday, I systematically worked my way through the Lego instructions page by page. Now, it might be that I was rather slow as a child, but my memory is that the instructions were incredibly complicated, and I made loads of mistakes as I made it. And if ever you've made Lego, you'll know that it's only 30 pages later when something else doesn't fit, you discover you've made a mistake, and then you have to go all the way back to correct the mistake so that the rest of the construction is going to work. And my memory is that it took me hours and hours, even days, to make this castle, so you can imagine my delight once it was finished. I picked up the castle, I ran into the kitchen to show my mum, and as I entered the kitchen, I dropped the castle, and it smashed into hundreds and hundreds of tiny pieces all over the floor. You can imagine my devastation and how I cried for hours and hours. But then after a while, I began the pain-filled task of rebuilding that which was broken. Only this time, it was even harder because all of the, the pieces were muddled up. And I think that Adam and Eve's connection with God is perfectly represented by my smashed up castle. That which was perfectly together in a moment was suddenly smashed to pieces and disconnected. Why? All because there was sin in that relationship. And that sin first manifests itself in an overwhelming sense of shame. Now, up to this point in the story in Genesis chapter 3, I guess we can conclude that Genesis 3 is only about sin. It's only about shame. But I don't want us to miss something that's really crucial in this text today, and it's this. In Genesis chapter 3, you see evidence of the grace of God start to reveal itself. The antidote to sin and shame is grace, the grace of God. And we see glimpses of that in our text that you don't see if you just skim read it. And what I wanted to suggest to us today is that the fall of Adam and Eve is, in a sense, just the first part of the story. It's the setting the scene, if you like, ready for the second part of the story, which is much more important. The fall sits in the shadow of God's greater grace. And as you get into the text, after verse 8 of this passage, we're introduced for the first time in the Bible to the immense, immeasurable grace and mercy of God that meets us every single time we fall short in our daily lives. And this happens, I think, in four ways in the text for Adam and Eve. Their experience is the beginning of the stepping stone journey where God reveals more and more of his grace with every single turn and page of the Bible. And ultimately, those stepping stones lead to Jesus. And the first glimpse of God's grace we see is God goes looking for them in verses 8 to 11. In verse 8, we read that they felt so guilty about what they'd done that Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God. But then in verse 9, we read this, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Isn't this brilliant? Adam and Eve hide, but God, our God, goes looking for them. The lost sheep were pursued by the loving shepherd. God's desire was to have a relationship with Adam and Eve despite what they'd done, and he wasn't prepared to let them go. Such was his love for them. 
And I just wonder in these moments now whether you can think of a time when you feel like you've perhaps so failed God that you've just wanted to hide from him. I wonder if you can think of a time in your life when you've just wanted to run away and even try and leave your face behind you. But of course, God never lets us do that. He loves us too much. He always comes looking for us. I guess a bit like the story of the prodigal son. He comes with arms open wide and he just longs longs to give us a a grace-filled embrace. God loves us too much to let us go. And I just wonder this morning whether you can hear God's call to you, say to you, where are you? I'm looking for you. Would you please not run? And if you're going to run, would you just run into my arms because my grace is sufficient for you? So the first glimpse of grace, God comes looking for us. But then there's a second glimpse of God's grace in Genesis chapter 3, which is God gives them what they want. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed something really strange, at least humanly speaking, that happens in this story. God doesn't deny to Adam and Eve the very things that they were seeking, even though it's directly against the will of God. They've been categorically told by God not to eat the fruit of the tree, and they disobey him. Why? Because they wanted to be like God, in a sense, to have God-like qualities, to know the difference between good and evil. And we start to see the consequences described for caving into that temptation. For Eve, it's in verse 16. The woman is given pain in childbirth. For Adam, the consequences are described in verse 17. The man finds physical work, the the labor of his hands, to be incredibly difficult. Now, it seems to me that both childbirth and manual labor could be seen as metaphors here for that creative urge that exists within all of us as humanity. A creative urge that we share with our creator God in whose image we're made, as we thought about last weekend. Prior to the fall, engagement in creativity would have been a pleasurable and a pain-free experience. I think of uh, Adam naming the animals with God. I can imagine the joy in that moment before the fall. But now, after the fall, the very acts of creativity become filled with pain and with agony. And I sense that God is saying, look, if you want to be like me, then that's okay. I'm a creator God and you can share in my creativity, but you need to know that that creativity for me from now on is a pain-filled act of self-giving. And isn't that true of our God that he gave himself in great pain for the world, knowing that the fall would happen, and his greatest act of creation was when he sent Jesus to the cross to experience the ultimate pain and agony by dying on the cross for us and therefore creating a way for us to be and remain in relationship with God. Even when we're tempted to turn our back on God and chase after things he's warned us against, he never ever takes away our free will. And in doing so, he prevents us from becoming little more than robots. I think this is an incredible act of God's grace. He allows us space to pursue things that he's warned us might harm us, but he gives us a space and the free will to do that. That's grace. And then thirdly, we see that God clothes Adam and Eve in verse 21. So Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They've gone against him in their decision-making, and they've now begun to realize the implications and the cost and the consequences of that decision. But then again comes another great act of mercy on God's behalf. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
Now, God in this moment understands Adam and Eve better than they even understand themselves. He knew how distraught they were feeling. He knew all about their shame and their sense of guilt. But what I love about this story is that there's no sense that God is going after them to kind of rub their face further in their shame. There's no sense in this story that God is pursuing them because he wants to um, rage and be angry at them. Instead, in the story, God shows only pity and grace and mercy as he clothes them and as he seeks to cover them to deal with their shame. Earlier in the story, they've kind of bodged together some fig leaves to cover up their shame, but God goes the extra mile and he fashions something that's actually fit for purpose. They'd bodged together some Asda smart price type clothing, but God has put together some Armani. I just imagine that Adam and Eve in this moment felt like a million dollars as they're wearing God's fashion label. And here's the truth. That's how God deals with us when we fall short through disobedience. When we try and cover up our shame with yet more shame and a few more layers of guilt, God strips all of that away and he fashions us with something that actually does the job of bringing us freedom. Something that brings us life when we deserve death. Because of Jesus, our sin and our shame is dealt with eternally if we're in relationship with him. With Jesus, we are not naked. With Jesus, we're not clothed in a fig leaf. With Jesus, we're not even clothed in garments of skin. With Jesus, we're clothed in Christ and his righteousness, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. When we're in a relationship with Jesus, we're hidden, yes, but we're not hidden in a garden behind a tree, but we're hidden in Christ Jesus and his death and his resurrection, Colossians 3, chapter 3. And I just wonder if any of us know that reality in our own lives. The reality of being hidden in Christ and therefore we can stand with our heads held high because shame and guilt does not need to define us. God clothes Adam and Eve. What an act of incredible grace. But then finally we see in this story that God protects them from the eternal consequences of their bad life decisions. As you get into the final verses of Genesis chapter 3, we, we find this part of the story where God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Now, every time I've read this story up till the last few weeks, I've always read this story as the ultimate punishment from God, that Adam and Eve have behaved so badly and God is so angry with them that he's going to punish them and he's going to take away this wonderful gift of Eden. It's a bit like I am with my kids when they've done something wrong and I scold them and I say, go to your room until you're an adult, that kind of thing. And isn't that so often how we read those verses? Isn't that so often how we believe God responds to us in our sinfulness, that he's so angry, he wants to take away every good thing that otherwise would exist in our lives? And I have a question, and the question is this, is, is it possible that we can read these verses differently? Is it possible that we can read these verses about God banishing Adam and Eve and instead of seeing his anger, instead we see his abundant grace? Verse 22 of chapter 3 said this, And the Lord God said, The man now, uh, has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth 
to guard the way to the tree of life. So what if this actually isn't an act of punishment by God, but instead is an act of ultimate mercy towards Adam and Eve? Now, don't forget, at this point, Adam and Eve have made their decision. God has told them that from this moment onwards, as a consequence of their sin, they're going to experience pain in their lives as a result. So what is it that's going on in God's mind here in this moment? I want to suggest that God in this moment is so distraught for us. He's so distraught at the thought of humanity having pain for all of eternity by living forever if they go back to that tree of life and eat from it, that he decides as an act of kindness to get Adam and Eve out of the garden so they'll be moved away from the temptation of eating from the tree of life and therefore live forever. Not with pleasure, but live forever with pain. A life of eternal pain is just a prospect that's too bad for God to bear. So he removes Adam and Eve from the garden and he bars their way back, not as a punishment, but to protect them from such an awful prospect. And then, of course, God is then in a position to reverse the error that we've made in Eden by sending his son Jesus to die for us, to take away our sin, so that through Jesus, eternal life is one of pleasure in the presence of God not an eternity of pain and regret for our fallenness. Can you see in Genesis chapter 3, actually there are glimpses of God's grace here in this story. And if you continue to turn the pages of Scripture, you find that those glimpses of God's grace are repeated over and over and over again until we get to the person of Jesus dying on the cross. And in that act, God says to us, I've done it, I've achieved for you for eternity a life of relationship with me, a life of life, and a life of fullness. Would you live in relationship with me through Jesus? And we're going to know this experience for the rest of eternity. What a great promise. What an act of God's grace. That's how it was for Adam and Eve. And I sense this morning God would say to us, that's how it is for you as well. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Shall we pray together? Lord, I thank you this morning that we can read these scripture verses and see glimpses of your goodness and of your grace. Glimpses of your incredible, abundant mercy to Adam and Eve. Lord, thank you that you pursued them. Thank you that you wouldn't let them hide. Lord, thank you that you clothed them in clothes that could actually deal with their shame. Lord, thank you so much that you have put safeguards in place despite our free will to try and protect us from an eternal lifetime of pain and hurt. And Lord, we thank you so much this morning for Jesus that in Jesus Christ we are free. In Jesus Christ we are hidden not in a garden but in his righteousness. Thank you that we can stand this morning and say that in Jesus we have a living hope because he's clothed us. He's clothed us in clothes that enable us to come into your holy presence. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our living hope. We thank you for the hope that's ours because of him. Lord, I pray as we go into the rest of this week that we would rest in the confidence and the assurance that in Christ Jesus we are free. We bless you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. As we draw our time towards a close, we're going to remain seated and just watch a, a video, a worship video, and I'd love to encourage you just to pay attention to the words that speak about Jesus, our living hope, and remind us of the hope that's ours in him.